Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're having a chat about Charlemagne, the great Frankish king who is responsible in many ways for the way that Europe is today. Charlemagne was a mighty conqueror who brought much of the continent under his rule. He spent a lot of his career fighting wars of expansion and conquest and ultimately in what would be a, a moment of enormous historical importance, Charlemagne was crowned as an emperor by the Pope, the first emperor in Western Europe since the time of the Romans. And uh, this and so much else from Charlemagne's career has gone on to have a truly colossal impact on the development of today's Europe, and therefore, with Europe being the you know the centre point of much of the world's political power for, for the last however many hundreds of years, uh, therefore the world. From his campaigns to expand the borders of his realm, to his accession as a papal-approved emperor, to the reforms that he undertook throughout the lands that he ruled, the story and the legacy of Charlemagne is very, very important indeed to world history. And his story is also a much-requested one. Uh, alert listeners John Dugal, Cassius Gentle, Seshank Baradwaj, Luke Mashin, Remco Boer, and Yasmin Abdullah all wrote in to ask that I get across Charlemagne. So here you go. Cheers to all of you for the emails. Thank you, uh, thank you very, very much. Um, and of course, I know I know that I say this every week, um, a lot to get across today, but I will I will admit that some stuff has had to hit the cutting room floor with this bloke. Uh, we, we do kind of whiz through some sections of his career because uh, honestly, look, if you were going to try to to be comprehensive when it comes to Charlemagne, you mate, we'd be here all week. There, there are <laughs> there are only so many hours in the day, but I've done my best. I've left all the good bits in, I hope so. So let's get to it. Let's get underway. Let's get stuck into the story of Charlemagne. Buckle up because we're off. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. Going all the way back to 748, probably, um, to the town of Aachen, probably, which can be found in modern-day Germany. This is our best guess as to uh, when and where Charlemagne was born. Not 100% on either of these things, but uh, there is a, I guess you could call it a loose consensus that he was born in, in Aachen, um, and a slightly looser consensus that he was born in 748. So... Best we can do. Anyway, uh, when he was born, he wasn't actually known as Charlemagne. That wasn't his birth name, uh, not even the name that he was known as during his lifetime. Charlemagne uh, comes from French. It comes from Charles le Magne, Charles the Great. Um, and this bloke was evidently that great that his epithet was fully absorbed into his actual name in many languages, including, of course, English and French and others besides. But in others, it wasn't, interestingly. Uh, in German, for instance, he's known as boring old Karl der Große, which just translates as Karl the, the Great or Charles the Great. Uh, but check this out, right? This next bit, really, really interesting. I had no idea about this. This is amazing. So you know how um, the, the Roman name and title Caesar from Julius Caesar this eventually evolved to become uh, the German and Russian term for emperor, right? Kaiser and, and Tsar, respectively. This came from Caesar. Well, the word for king in a ton of different languages, Russian, Ukrainian, Czech, Slovak, Lithuanian, Latvian, Bulgarian, Serbo-Croatian, even Turkish, right? The word for king in these languages is based on Charlemagne. Kral or Kroll or Coral or, or Karolis, 
all of these all of these words originate from Charles's name. We call him Charles, um, but in his lifetime, most people would have called him Carlos or Carlo, and that is where the word for king is. That's where the word for king originates in in a ton of different languages. An absolutely fascinating piece of of, of etymology there, and and something that probably should give you a sense of of just how important this bloke was, as we'll discover. Anyway. Charlemagne, as I say, he was born uh, back in or around 748, the son of a bloke named Pepin the Short and his wife Bertrada of Leon. Um, Pepin the Short was the son of Charles Martel, who won the famous Battle of Tours, uh, episodes 14 and 15. Get, uh, get across my guess. They're not that good. Um, I was really very much still figuring it all out back in those early episodes. They are a bit rough around the edges. Anyway, Charles Martel, um, very powerful, very famous military leader. He hadn't been king. He wasn't king of the Franks. Uh, he was just a duke and a military leader. But he still amassed an enormous amount of political power for himself. Um, and this enabled his son, Pepin, to essentially seize power. He usurped the throne of Childeric III, the last Merovingian king, a uh, little more than a figurehead by the end of things and instead established himself as the first Carolingian king, Pepin the Short. Now, Pepin, um, he ruled over territory that spanned most of modern-day France, not Brittany, though, that was still its own realm. Um, it stretched uh, across modern-day Belgium, uh, the southern Netherlands, northwest Germany, and all the way down uh, through the south to, uh, to the Mediterranean coast. And uh, even as a youngster, while his dad was off governing his realm, uh, Pepin was, you know, doing all sorts, of, all the stuff that you'd expect of a king, traveling around, putting down rebellions, especially down south in Aquitaine, all that sort of stuff. Uh, even as a youngster, Charlemagne was off with him, uh, along with his brother as well, Carloman, uh, learning the business of, uh, of being a king. And it's good that he got all this experience at a young age because... He ended up becoming a king himself uh, before very much longer. His dad, uh, Pepin the Short, wasn't just short in stature, it seems, but also in lifespan because he died in his early 50s. And so Charlemagne, at the age of just 20 or so in the year 768, he inherits the title of the King of the Franks. However, he does not inherit this title on his own. As was the custom back then, Pepin divided his lands uh, and titles between his sons, and while they were given direct control of, of different halves of Pepin's kingdom, Carloman the North and, and Charlemagne the somewhat rebellious South, um, they still had to rule the larger kingdom together as co-monarchs. So, Charlemagne, he's stuck as co-ruler with his younger brother Carloman, uh, but bugger of a thing for, for Charlemagne, of course, um, like when you were kids and your mum would force you to take a young, your younger sibling along to play with you and your friends, you couldn't be mean or they'd tell on you. It's a, it's a, very, it's a very difficult bloody thing, being an elder sibling, I can tell you. Um, and it's made even worse when you don't get on with your younger siblings, which was very much the case with these two. These two brothers didn't get on well. They were, they were, butting, they were butting heads and disagreeing on... More or less everything when it came to ruling the realm, from the division of territory to the best way to tackle all the rebels that pl that still plague their authority, particularly, as I said, in Aquitaine in the south. Um, although, I will say, before we come down too hard on Carloman for, for you know messing things up for Charlemagne, we, we do have to give him some credit for what he did in 771. Because Carloman did something that, um, well, look, I, I wouldn't say that it reconciled the two brothers, that... that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't be enormously accurate but uh, what he did definitely removed all of the problems and conflict and strife that they were having as co-rulers it was rather rather selfless of him really because in 771 Carloman died and that was that Charlemagne uh, was actively invited by Carloman's barons to annex his territory rather than allow it to pass to his infant son 
And so from 771 onwards, Charlemagne essentially ruled the entire Frankish kingdom from the Pyrenees to the Rhine with no one to stand in his way. Charlemagne's authority over Carloman's land was consolidated through his marriage to the daughter of one of the most powerful of the new barons that he just acquired. Um, although I will say this, this marriage was a controversial move for a couple of reasons. It did happen before Carloman died um, and actually could have been a prelude to Charlemagne trying to muscle in on his brother's territories. Uh, but obviously, as Carloman died, that became a moot point. But um, whether or not Charlemagne was was plotting some sort of takeover with a familial alliance uh, of, um, of, of Carloman's lands, uh, his marriage to his new wife, Hildegard, um, meant that he had to uh, annul the marriage that he had already uh, undertaken with a, uh, a Lombardian princess. He, he put this, uh, this princess aside in favour of young Hildegard instead, deeming, uh, deeming her to be a, a more politically expedient choice. And uh, his marriage to Hildegard, uh, obviously it, it pissed off the Lombardians, but also resulted in nine children across 12 years uh, for the two of them. They must have been very, very busy indeed. Um, and of course, we'll come back to the important roles that uh, some of these kids played in, in Charlemagne's later life. But now, with all of Francia under Charlemagne's direct control, with his campaigns against the rebels having gone pretty well down in Aquitaine, Charlemagne in 771, he's sitting pretty. Things are going very, very well for the young king. Um, his realm is relatively secure. His reign and authority is pretty consolidated. Uh, on top of that, this bloke is already known to be a, a, a fearsome, courageous and mighty warrior. Great big, tall, strong bloke as well. He was over two metres tall, which is, even by today's standards, very tall. But back then, when the average European male was about 170 centimetres, this bloke is towering over most people back then. Uh, so things going, as I say, very, very well for the young king, and he is ready to face whatever opportunities or challenges that may emerge for him. And in 772, he senses an opportunity to expand the political, military, and religious power of his realm when Desiderius, the king of the, Lombard, king of the Lombards, and also incidentally the father of the princess that he had, uh, that Charlemagne had spurned, um, Desiderius got into a stoush with the papacy. Um, Pope Adrian I had just been confirmed, and he and Desiderius really didn't see eye to eye on many issues. Uh, so much so that Desiderius actually invaded papal lands and uh, seemed to have had his eye on Rome itself. Now, luckily for Adrian, Charlemagne was a dyed-in-the-wool devout Christian. This bloke absolutely bloody loved the Pope, and uh, as you'll see throughout his career, did a lot to support the papacy in Rome. And so when Adrian came to Charlemagne and petitioned, uh, petitioned him for help against, uh, against this Lombardian king, help very swiftly arrived. Charlemagne initially attempted to mediate the conflict between these two, firmly informing Desiderius that if he didn't leave Adrian alone, there would be trouble. But Desiderius conversely firmly informed Charlemagne to blow it out his royal ass. He is obviously still salty about Charlemagne throwing his daughter over. And look, you know, Charlemagne... He's not about to be spoken to like that. So the Franks, they marched into Lombardy, into northern Italy, and absolutely thrashed Desiderius and his forces as they fled to the, to the city of Pavia, uh, just south of Milan. And there, Charlemagne laid siege to the city for almost a year. The Franks outnumbered the Lombardians four to one, uh, seeing which way the wind was blowing, no other Lombardian barons came to Desiderius' aid. And so ultimately, as I say, within, within the space of a year, Desiderius was forced to surrender. 
Now, Charlemagne very graciously didn't take his life, but he bloody damn well sure took his crown with the blessing, of course, of Pope Adrian, uh, whose palms had been very well greased by Charlemagne with some juicy land grants after he conquered uh, Lombardy. And so in 774, Charlemagne was crowned as king of the Lombards. In addition to already being king of the Franks, he added the Iron Crown of Lombardy to his collection. The Iron Crown, by the way, it's, uh, it, it, it survived. It's still around today. It's on display in Milan's Monza Cathedral. And I will say this about the Iron Crown. It is very poorly named because it is mostly made not of iron, but of gold. Uh, its name comes from the legend that the crown contains um, iron that was taken from one of the nails of the cross on which Jesus was crucified. However, in 1993, scientific analysis of the iron crown revealed it to contain approximately 0% iron. So unless the Romans back then were in the habit of using nails made of silver or gold when they crucified people, the legend probably isn't true. These bloody scientists, they're ruining ruining everything for everyone. Next, they're going to tell us that the moon isn't actually made of cheese. Anyway, Charlemagne, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't just busy in, uh, in Lombardy during this time because uh, in the early 770s, the longest and perhaps most important conflict that Charlemagne fought throughout his entire career was a, uh, a series of wars known as the Saxon Wars that began, as I say, during this period. Saxons were people living off to the east of Francia, in, uh, in, mainly in what is today's northern Germany. And uh, they were pagan uh, in comparison to the, the Christians of Francia, led by the extremely Christian Charlemagne. Um, and they didn't get on with the Franks at all. Uh, the Saxons and the Franks did not have a good relationship, to say the very least. Uh, in 772, uh, it, it all came a gutsa when a Saxon raiding party crossed into Francia and sacked, looted, and burnt down a church in the town of Deventer, which is in today's Netherlands. Charlemagne, who seems to have been a bloke with exceedingly little tolerance for this sort of thing, he immediately mounted a campaign of retribution and eventually conquest against the Saxons. So he's fighting the, the Lombardians down to the south. That went very well for him. And now he's fighting the, uh, the Saxons up to, up to the northeast. And this campaigning was not quick, like it was down in Lombardy. The, uh, the Saxon campaigns would last over three decades and would be one of the defining elements of Charlemagne's legacy, as we'll see. The Saxon Wars began in earnest when Charlemagne invaded Saxon lands and destroyed one of their holy sites, uh, an Ermensul, thought to be a hollow tree, perhaps reminiscent of, uh, of Norse mythology's Yggdrasil, the, the world tree. And after this, the Franks raided and pillaged and burnt Saxon lands just to get the message across and still, until an unsteady peace was brokered and Charlemagne was able to return his attention to Lombardy and his growing collection of crowns. Now, I say an unsteady peace, and honestly, even this might be a bit, uh, a bit generous here, because it wasn't much of a peace at all between the Franks and the Saxons, particularly uh, after the emergence of a Saxon... I don't, call, I, don't, I don't know how to describe this bloke, I don't know what to call him, a duke, I guess, although officially the, the Duchy of Saxony hasn't been created yet. We'll, we'll get there. So I don't know what this bloke was, a warlord, I guess, a leader. Um, he led the Saxons in making war against the Franks, uh, and he did a very bloody good job of it, this bloke. His name was Vidukind. And uh, he certainly tested the mettle of Charlemagne in leading the resistance against the Christian invaders from the West. In 775, with the business in Lombardy wrapped up for, for Charlemagne and the, uh, the I-can't-believe-it's-not-iron crown secured for him, Charlemagne had to 
had to once again return his focus to the east with the rise of Widukind and uh, just how much trouble this bloke was causing as a rebellious pagan leader. So the, Fran- the, the Franks, they swept into, into Saxony once again, some more raising, some more pillaging, and uh, after some extremely hard-fought battles with Widukind and his Saxons fighting hell for leather, the Franks ultimately did emerge victorious. They captured a major Saxon fort, and uh, they annexed, for now, a, a huge amount of Saxon territory. And in doing this, Charlemagne also forced many Saxons to leave their old ways behind and, con- and to convert to Christianity, uh, attempting to, to bring these Saxons, integrate them culturally and religiously into, into, the, into his realm, into Francia, into his kingdom. And so with Wittekind on the run and with the, uh, with the Saxons subdued, for now, uh, in 776, Charlemagne returned to the Italian peninsula once again, really racking up the, the frequent rider miles here he is, because some barons in Lombardy had had the bright, a bright idea to revolt against him. And as you might expect from a king such as, uh, such as Charlemagne, someone as mighty as he was, he wiped the bloody floor with them and replaced not just them, but any other uh, mutinous nobles that he came across in Lombardy with people who were a little more uh, open to the idea of Frankish suzerainty over northern Italy. However, he couldn't stay in Lombardy for very long because more or less the moment he turned his back and rode down south, the Saxons started getting rowdy again. Vidukind came out of the woodwork, started causing trouble. And so as soon as this business uh, with, these, uh, with these rebellious dukes in Lombardy is wrapped up, we see Charlemagne chuck a Yui and head straight back up to the northeast to deal with these Saxons who, as I say, are back up to their old tricks in, uh, in 777. And the Saxons, they're not, going down, they're not going down without a fight. They were... Ultimately, finally brought into line, Vidukind had to flee to Denmark, the wind left the Saxon sail, Charlemagne was victorious, but again, only for now. Charlemagne was tireless in his campaigning against the Saxons, and this would go on to have huge consequences for the, for the development of the history of Europe, as, as we'll, we'll talk about later on in the episode. But this time around, in, in, as we head towards uh, the, the late 770s and into the 780s, um, Charlemagne was much more heavy-handed in bringing the Saxons to heel. He pretty mercilessly forced the incorporation of Saxony and the Saxons into his growing empire. And as I say, he wasn't particularly kind about it. Frankish rule in Saxony saw mass forced conversions to Christianity. Uh, and on top of that, the execution of those who continued to practice their pagan ways, to the point that Charlemagne actually began to be referred to as the Butcher of the Saxons. Now, once this nickname began to began to sort of get around the traps and once Charlemagne heard how he was being referred to by these Saxons, he did relent a little bit. He realised that he's probably going to catch more flies with, uh, with honey rather than vinegar. And uh, instead of uh, focusing on conversion via sword point, he encouraged missionary work. But nonetheless, many Saxons were still very unhappy or very dead, thanks to the fact that they had been subjugated at the hands of the Franks. Even so, when Charlemagne left Saxony in 778 to expand his empire even further elsewhere, this time to the west, the Saxons didn't revolt. Uh, not this time, at least. The Saxon Wars are still far from over, but Charlemagne had put them in their place this time around, at least, and for the moment, there was a, a period of relative peace in Saxony. Anyway, I mentioned before how both Pepin the Short and Charlemagne after him had had to contend with rebels within Francia itself, principally located in the south, southwest in Aquitaine. 
And while these rebels didn't give Charlemagne too much trouble, uh, as I say, he had consolidated his his reign over most of his realm pretty early on in his career. Nonetheless, he uh, he didn't think that it would do any harm to remind these southwestern provinces that he ruled over of his might and power as their king. And so in 778, Charlemagne le- himself, he led troops through Aquitaine, reminding everyone who was in charge, but also with a view to expand the influence and the territory of his realm across the Pyrenees, the mountain range which, which today obviously separates France and Spain. But that, back then, these mountains were, were not a buffer between France and Spain, but instead between the Christian and the Muslim worlds, as Andalusian Muslims ruled much of Iberia on the other side of the mountains. All was not well in Iberia. Factional infighting amongst, amongst Islamic authorities over there had, led to, uh, had actually led to some of these, these Muslim authorities come to Charlemagne himself for help, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend, I suppose they thought. And uh, some, of the, uh, some of the smaller Muslim city-states and, and, and smaller realms actually came to Charlemagne and said, these bloody Umayyads, I tell you what, they're giving us all sorts of trouble. We know you don't like them as well. How about giving us a hand? So when the rulers of cities like Barcelona and Zaragoza were under threat from these Umayyads uh, of Cordoba, when they offered to, when they came to Charlemagne and offered to, to pay him homage if he would help to fight the Umayyads off, Charlemagne once again sensed an opportunity to expand not just his own realm's borders, but the borders of Christendom more broadly. So Charlemagne, he said, absolutely, mate, no worries at all. I'll be there with bells on. He marched into Iberia and got his ass handed to him. I tell you what, as mighty as his conquests had been in both Lombardy and Saxony, Charlemagne was sent back from Iberia with his tail between his legs after having received the whipping of a lifetime. And it wasn't just his Muslim foes, it wasn't just the Umayyads who gave him hell. No, the pagan Basques got after him as retribution for his attempts to conquer them as well. After being licked by the Umayyads, um, as Charlemagne retreated across back across the Pyrenees, the very famous Battle of the Rosovo Pass saw his rearguard take extremely heavy losses at the hands of these Basques. And this summed up and ended Charlemagne's invasion of, of Iberia. It was a total failure. However, the reason I mention this Battle of Rosovo Pass um, is because it, this battle, very important for another reason altogether. As part of this battle, uh, one of Charlemagne's commanders, a bloke whose name was Roland, he made a valiant last stand, uh, defending the Frankish retreat as part of this rearguard. And Roland was, like most of the rearguard alongside him, killed as part of this battle. And posthumously, he was honoured by Charlemagne so much that his story was told and retold and retold over the years that this bloke, Roland, he effectively passed into legend. And just as England has its tales of mythical knights like Lancelot and Percival, uh, France, too, has its own legends. England has King Arthur and France has Charlemagne. Uh, Only one of these two kings has been properly historically verified as a a real person. But all the same, these two blokes, they play a very similar role in the mythological, quote-unquote, histories of their two nations, the so-called Matter of Britain and the Matter of France. Charlemagne had his court and his knights, just as Arthur had his court and his knights and his round table. 
And preeminent amongst the Knights of Charlemagne is, or was, Roland, who died in the Battle of Roncevaux Pass. And we do sort of blur the lines between history and mythology when we start to talk about Roland. He was a real person, but his story, as I say, was told and retold. Over the years, it was romanticised and fictionalised and ultimately led to the 11th century work The Song of Roland, generally considered to be the first great work in the French language. But The Song of Roland goes even further than that, because the development of knights and chivalry and and everything else that goes along with that aspect of medieval European culture, it can be traced directly back to works like The Song of Roland. Alongside all these other tales that come from the matter of France, the matter of Britain, those of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, Roland in time became the archetypical example of a brave knight in shining armour, sacrificing himself for his king. Roland became a role model to the knights, the actual real world knights of the later medieval era. So in this way, Roland and Charlemagne, I suppose, also had a very real impact on the culture and the code of chivalry as people sought to emulate him and his deeds. To put things in perspective for you here, right, to to give you a sense of what this would mean in today's world, this would be a bit like you deciding on a career change, deciding that you wanted to become a pirate. And so, obviously, knowing what you know about pirates, you get an eye patch and a parrot and a peg leg because... That's the cultural conception we have today of pirates 300 years later after generations of tales and and, and romanticising these these historical figures and and fictionalising their stories. Knights in the 11th century sought to be like Roland in the same way that you might might seek to be like, I don't know, Blackbeard, episode 274, get across it. Although... I will say, I, I don't recommend you going up against actual real-life 21st century pirates with a, you know, with a cutlass and a flintlock. Uh, pirates these days tend to have things like AK-47s and rocket-propelled grenades, so I don't, I don't like your chances there. Anyway, uh, this campaigning into Iberia had been a, a bit of a bust, to put it mildly, and uh, while Charlemagne's eldest son Pepin the Hunchback later continued the fight against the Andalusians and uh, did have, you know, a reasonable amount of success. He even captured Barcelona in 797. Charlemagne's ambitions uh, for the conquest of Iberia never eventuated. And of course, it would be hundreds and hundreds of years before Christians were able to reconquer Iberia and take it off the hands of the Andalusian Muslims. Anyway, we can speed things up a little bit here as we get into the 780s and 790s. Firstly, we'll head back to Saxony, which had enjoyed a period of relative peace after their subjugation of the uh, of the late 770s, but that was about to change. In 782, Charlemagne returned to Saxony and again cracked down on pagans and those who refused to convert to Christianity, and this went down like a fart in an elevator. Uh, after a few years of having been left alone, these disgruntled Saxons began to become increasingly mutinous, and sensing his moment... Vidukind returned from the north, leading Saxons in open revolt against Charlemagne once more. Charlemagne, however, he responded in no uncertain terms. He ordered the execution of four and a half thousand Saxon prisoners in an event known to history as the Massacre of Verdun. Now, this, as you can imagine, only made the conflict between the Franks and the Saxons worse. Uh, what followed it were years of horrific and brutal and bitter conflict between the two peoples. But in the end, Charlemagne and the Franks were far too powerful. 
In 785, Vidukin surrendered, but rather than be killed, he accepted conversion to Christianity. And this brought about an end to the last major Saxon rebellion against Charlemagne. And in a practical sense, 785 marks when Saxony became part of Francia. We do, we do still have a few more Saxon revolts to get through yet. We'll come back to them in a little bit. But it is worth pointing out the historical significance of the conquest of Saxony. Because in our modern conception of Western Europe today, we think about nations like France, nations like Germany, having, despite their differences and despite the wars that have been fought between these nations over the years, they have a shared cultural heritage. They share a common a common cultural ancestor, I guess, when you look back through the, the history of Western Europe, the Christianization of Western Europe, and the very close cultural, religious, geopolitical links that these nations have had. And this in many ways stems back to Charlemagne. If we want to characterize the most powerful nations in modern day Europe as France and Germany, a characterization that I think is ultimately pretty fair, the shared history that, that these two nations have had in, in so many ways comes back to Charlemagne and his conquest of much of what is today Germany. Uh, obviously, he still hasn't finished. He's still got to get after Bavaria and a couple of other bits and pieces. We'll come to that. But the, the successful waging of the Saxon Wars and Charlemagne's role as a conqueror of what would go on to become Germany completely changed the course of European history. Anyway, the 780s also saw Charlemagne expand further south along the Italian peninsula, forcing the capitulation of independent dukes there. Uh, so he expanded his, his, uh, his influence to the south. Uh, and also saw continued fighting in and around the Pyrenees as the Franks continued their efforts to gain a foothold in Iberia. Now, this didn't come to all that much in terms of great territorial gains, as I mentioned, but it did mean that the Franks had a, a consistent presence in the region and, as a result, maintained a very strong buffer between Christendom and the Islamic world. Um, over towards Iberia as well, uh, Charlemagne worked very hard to convert non-Christians within his sphere of influence. Uh, he was very, very keen, it seems, to get as many people on side with old mate Jeezy Crazy as he could. And as we move now into the 790s, um, the bulk of Charlemagne's uh, attention was occupied by, by what was going on in the East, and not, what was, not, just, not just what was going on with the Saxons. He annexed the Duchy of Bavaria, added, uh, adding that to his empire, and also went after the Avars, nomads from Central Asia, who were getting a little too comfortable over in what is today modern Hungary. Charlemagne sent troops down to make sure the Avars didn't wear out their welcome, pushing them back from the Danube and securing his borders. And eventually the Avars gave up altogether, uh, sought lasting peace by submitting to Charlemagne uh, and, importantly, converted to Christianity while settling to the southeast of Vienna. And that worked out for them for a while, but then 100 years later the Magyars arrived to, to establish what is today Hungary and, and that was it for the Avars. But the point here is... Charlemagne's continued efforts to Christianize much of Europe spared the spread of this religion and had a huge hand in making Europe the, broadly speaking, Christian continent that it is today. But uh, his campaign against the Avars had another very familiar consequence. The Saxons rose up against him once again. Because he was off fighting the Avars, the Saxons sensed an opportunity. He had, he, Charlemagne had his back turned, and what better time to try to stick a knife in it? 
So while Charlemagne was busy elsewhere, um, the Saxons began a another uprising. And, and it wasn't just because he was off fighting the, uh, the Avars. It wasn't just because he was busy doing that. Charlemagne also attempted to recruit the Saxons as his subjects. He attempted to forcibly recruit them to fight the Avars. The Saxons loved to fight, of course. However, they seem to have had a strong preference for fighting Franks, not Avars, and so they chose to do that instead. In 792, there was another Saxon rebellion, uh, but by this stage, Charlemagne, he knows their tricks. He knows how to deal with them, and so he crushed the first new revolt in 792, and then another one in 796. I will say, though, that next year, right, in 797, Charlemagne finally relented. He became a lot more lenient with the Saxons. He rolled back some of his harsher laws and policies. He sought to uh, to more fully and more peacefully integrate Saxony into Francia, something that, broadly speaking, he was successful in doing. Christianity was spreading through the lands he'd conquered like wildfire. After almost 30 years of fighting, maybe both sides were starting to have enough of the whole thing. Or then again, maybe not, because we do have, we do have one more Saxon revolt to get across. They really did not go down quietly, did they? Anyway, as we approach now the end of the, of the 790s, a moment of huge historical importance is on the horizon, something that would shape European history for centuries to come, an event whose legacy can very easily be seen to this day. In 795, Pope Leo III was elected, and let me tell you, he did not have an easy time of things at all. He had enemies all over the place, both internal and external. He is not a popular bloke in Rome. He is barely keeping it together as as he attempts to you know, not just govern the papal states, but also assert and maintain his authority over the church more broadly. And in 799, it all came a guts of Leo. He was forced to flee Rome as his enemies closed in, and he ran straight to Charlemagne to beg for help. It had worked for Adrian, and hopefully it was going to work for him as well. By now, however, Charlemagne was undoubtedly far more powerful than the Pope. He was easily the most powerful man in Western Europe. But nonetheless, the spiritual authority of the papacy was still very strong and never one to turn down an opportunity to expand his sphere of influence. Charlemagne agreed to help Leo, realising that it would probably benefit him to have a Pope in his pocket. So in the year 800, Charlemagne returned to Rome, putting Leo under his de facto protection And uh, this, of course, resulted in Leo's enemies within Rome quietening down just a little bit because none of them wanted to get offside with Charlemagne. Charlemagne organised a uh, a trial, I guess, but it was largely a show trial. He had Leo face the charges that had had been uh, put up by his enemies. Uh, Leo's enemies had run the Pope out out of Rome because of these charges they'd put against him, perjury, adultery. But his political enemies were a lot quieter now that Charlemagne was, uh, was at his back. As, as Europe's most powerful man organised this trial, they were awfully quiet in having Leo face the music. And so, uh, on the 23rd of December, 800, Charlemagne held this trial, this show trial for Leo. And uh, in it, Leo swore his innocence and, of course, was duly acquitted by his good mate Charlemagne. Now... This trial had a couple of very, very important consequences. First of all, it, uh, it was pretty humiliating for Leo, even though it meant that he was absolved of, of, of you know, so many of the crimes that his enemies uh, um, essentially you know, had accused him of. 
It was not a very proud moment for the Pope. He was forced to essentially submit himself to the authority and judgment of a temporal ruler like a king, who the Pope was supposed to be above, right? So this was a massive blow to the prestige and the power of the office of Pope. And it's thought that this was what led directly to what happened next. Because on the 25th of December, two days after this trial, on Christmas Day, Charlemagne visited the tomb of St. Peter. And while he knelt in prayer at the tomb as part of a religious service, Leo put an imperial crown on Charlemagne's head and declared him to be emperor of the Romans. And this was, as I mentioned earlier, the first time a Western European emperor had been crowned since the time of the Western Roman Empire, back before Romulus Augustulus was deposed in 476. But here's where it really gets interesting, because we don't know to this day the exact motivations of either Charlemagne or Leo as Charlemagne was crowned in this way. And historians, they still argue about it. Some say that Charlemagne was surprised by Leo doing this, that he would, that he would, he would have refused to go through with Leo's plan had he known what was going to happen to him, had he known that Leo was going to attempt to crown him. But of course, he would have known as soon as he set foot in the church what was going to happen. It's not as if, you know, he would have seen the imperial crown there. It's not like Leo could have pulled it from a pocket or hidden it behind his back. So there is a good argument to be made that Charlemagne was was complicit in this crowning or at least just went along with it because he realized it wouldn't hurt, you know. But then again... Maybe he just later claimed to have been reluctant to accept the crown and make himself look good. We don't know. Um, He may have been very keen for it to happen. He may have played an active role in Leo crowning him. He may have plotted the whole thing out himself to further bolster his power and his authority. And look, the reason Leo did it is a little clearer. It certainly didn't hurt his prestige. It put him right back in the thick of things, right? It, it, It proved that he was a political mover and shaker in Europe. It was he, the Pope, who was anointing a new emperor. He wasn't having to... Sit, sit there and explain himself during a trial in front of a king. No, he was now the one deciding who was going to be in power in Europe, not the other way around. So Leo, obviously all for it. But whether Charlemagne was, we're not sure. It's up for debate. There are those who claim he had the whole thing planned out, and there, there are those who claim that, no, he was very humble. He didn't seek or want this sort of title. Now, look, I personally suspect that it was the former. I reckon it's probably more likely that he did plan this whole thing out and did indeed covet an imperial title, given his enormous ambition, you know, as a, as a conqueror. And the whole thing about his reluctance, it, it sounds like the sort of story that would have been made up later to make him seem humble and seem, you know, like a, like a good bloke. So I, I'm not really falling for it, but again, it's up for debate. We don't know 100% what was going on between these two blokes and, and why Charlemagne was crowned as he was. But we certainly do know the consequences of this monumentally important historical moment. Because Charlemagne was proclaimed as Emperor of the Romans, right? On Christmas Day in the year 800, he was made Emperor of the Romans. Or to put it another way, he was made the Roman Emperor. And he was crowned by none other than the Pope, who is a pretty bloody holy fella, right? So I suppose, given that, you could call Charlemagne a Holy Roman Emperor. Depending on whom you ask, Charlemagne's coronation in the year 800 is considered as the starting point of the Holy 
Roman Empire, one of the most important political entities in European history. Although I will say historians are far from agreed on this point. Uh, Many say that the Holy Roman Empire began in 962 instead when Otto I was crowned, but that's another story. We don't need to get into the debate. Certainly, it is not a settled point, but there are those who believe that the Holy Roman Empire traces its origins back to this moment, back to the conquests and the crowning of Charlemagne in the year 800. But even if it wasn't, even if we see the point that the Holy Roman Empire began a century and a half later with Otto I, we can still definitely say that the year 800 was the beginning of the Carolingian Empire, although that didn't last quite as long as the Holy Roman Empire did. Um, And also Charlemagne's realm was never called that back in the day. That's something that we refer to it as now. Um, During Charlemagne's time, uh, people referred to his realm as either the Romanum Imperium, the Roman Empire, or the Romanorum Sive Francorum Imperium, the Empire of the Romans and the Franks, or the Universum Regnum, the whole kingdom, as, as distinct from all the different regional kingdoms that it, uh, that it, was, um, it was made up of, or rather simply the Imperium Christianum, the Christian Empire. And I think this last name is a very, very good one, it, particularly when you think about how determined Charlemagne was uh, in spreading Christianity throughout his realm, in in Saxony, in Iberia, in any place where there was still where there was still particularly paganism, uh, Charlemagne's empire was at its core a Christian empire and laid the foundation for more or less all of Europe today to be this continent with a shared Christian heritage. Anyway, whatever his realm was called, as a papally ordained emperor, Charlemagne's authority had never been more potent. Not to mention that it also helped Leo out enormously with a huge burst of prestige and legitimacy. And by their powers combined, Christendom was powerless to resist the will of Charlemagne. In the West, at least. In the East, as you might remember from episode 86, Empress Irene get across it, the Byzantines were none too pleased that a Frank and not a Greek had been crowned as Roman Emperor. The Byzantines considered themselves the true successors of the Roman Empire. Well, no, actually, no, they didn't even really consider, consider themselves as the successors of the Roman Empire. They considered, they considered themselves to be the Roman Empire itself, really. So, This certainly contributed to the ongoing tension between Rome and Constantinople. And again, episode 86 gets across a lot of that and some of the the other things that were going on with the the papacy's refusal to crown a woman as a, a Christian empress. Charlemagne certainly came along at the right time for them to find an alternative to Irene. But look, whatever the case, it didn't matter to Charlemagne, who was completely unopposed in the west of Europe. The Saxon Wars ended in 804 after one last revolt. This time Charlemagne rounded up all the rebellious Saxons and forcibly moved them from Saxony into Neustria over in the west of his realm. And uh, this completely took the wind out of the sails of, 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 of Saxon mutiny. They couldn't continue to ferment dissent in his empire's fringes, instead taking to his empire's heartlands where they were very quickly subsumed by the cultural and religious pressure that they would have uh, they would have received again in these frankish heartlands and more broadly if we zoom out and and have a look at what happened after he was crowned as emperor charlemagne 
more or less just halted all of these efforts that he had made so stridently throughout his career to further expand his realm. Rather than travel all over the place, personally involving himself in invasions and conquests, he just kind of chilled in his imperial court in Aachen. He appointed his sons as kings underneath his imperial authority. He carved up his empire into three kingdoms and gave them to the three sons that hadn't revolted against him. Uh, his eldest, Pepin the Hunchback, the bloke who I mentioned had captured Barcelona, he, uh, he was sent to a monastery after very foolishly, foolishly attempting to lead a rebellion against Charlemagne. Not the wisest thing to have done. And so as a result, his three other sons got, uh, got the empire divvied up between them. Charles the Younger got the lion's share, the uh, entire northern section of the empire, from uh, what is now Normandy all the way across to, to Bavaria. Pepin of Italy got, well... Italy, obviously, and uh, yes, Charlemagne did have two sons, both called Pepin. And finally, Louis the Pious got southern France. And actually, Louis the Pious ended up getting the whole lot in the end, because all of his brothers, including the rebellious Pepin, all of them predeceased their father. But before that, this division, it was laid out in 806, these three sons, as I mentioned, they ruled as kings under their father's authority as emperor. He did know how to delegate. And Charlemagne, after delegating power to his sons like this, he focused on other things, empire-wide reforms rather than conquest and expansion. With his realm and his succession plan secure, he instituted laws and began reforms across all aspects of governance of the governance of his realm. And I can give you a few quick examples here. Uh, he reformed monetary and accounting policies. Uh, this included inviting Jewish moneylenders to immigrate into his realm. He encouraged the spread and the development of education and the translation and publication of books. While he's not particularly famous for this, um, uh, Charlemagne was nonetheless a, a reasonably learned bloke. He never learned how to write. He could read sort of. He wasn't a super talented reader, but he did take a, a, an interest in learning and loved to be read too on all sorts of different topics. And uh, under his leadership, there was a flourishing of, of, the, of, of scholarly and, and cultural and artistic output as well, as he invited and funded works of art, works of, of scientific research, such as it was in the, in the 9th century. And uh, it is one of uh, Charlemagne's less well-known, but still nonetheless important legacies, the contributions that he made to scientific and cultural output uh, during his time, particularly as emperor. And he also sought to reform the church. He both strengthened the role of the Christian church in day-to-day -day public life, but also regulated it. Now, this had a mixed response from the church itself. While they were very happy to have a champion like Charlemagne empowering them, the church was, it was somewhat reluctant to accept the temporal authority over their spiritual affairs. But all the same, they didn't have too much of a choice because it's very difficult to go up against Charlemagne at the best of times. And, uh, and so as a result, the, uh, the, the church was, was brought into line a little bit as, uh, as Charlemagne, as I say, continued to, to regulate its role in, in daily public life. And finally, as we've touched upon with the way that he delegated power to his sons, Charlemagne also oversaw many governmental reforms, streamlining the way that his government operated across its many levels. Um, and, and this also took in a range of other reforms, legal reforms, military reforms, all sorts of stuff. Honestly, we're not going to get too into the weeds. It's not quite as exciting and, and as interesting as the battle, as the tales of you know battle and conquest. But the thing to take away from this is uh, is the fact that Charlemagne, with uh, you know seeming to be content with what he'd achieved before being crowned as emperor, 
um, he focused on improving what he had rather than always hungering for more. And not many leaders recognise or follow transition points like this. So good on Charlemagne for that, uh, I reckon, for being able to realise that the time had come for consolidation of his realm and and uh, an opportunity had arisen for uh, the the reformation and the improvement of his realm rather than just its continued uh, ever everlasting expansion. Anyway, Pepin of Italy, he died in 810, then Charles the Younger died in 811, as did Pepin the Hunchback in his monastery. And this meant that before Charlemagne himself died, in the very final years of his life, uh, Charlemagne only had one heir, Louis the Pious. And this simplified the succession enormously. Charlemagne had been worried about his sons fighting for power and territory after his death, but that, that problem now had solved itself. In 813, Charlemagne summoned his son Louis and crowned him as co-emperor alongside, uh, alongside his old man. Uh, and this was done just to put the matter beyond doubt, to send a very clear signal to everyone who might start sensing a bit of an opportunity to, uh, to close in on Louis when Charlemagne uh, died, that Louis was indeed the, the ordained and anointed successor of Charlemagne, and that no one was to mess with him. And broadly speaking, it worked. Because in early 814, the very next year after he, uh, he crowned his son as co-emperor, Charlemagne fell ill and died on the 28th of January, as I say, in the year 814. Lewis went on to rule the Carolingian Empire reasonably successfully, although ultimately he also had to split his realm up, as his father had done before him, between his three sons when he died. And this succession was a lot less smooth. And before long, the Carolingian Empire was plagued with civil war and ultimately broke up entirely into West, Middle and East Francia. And in very, very broad terms, very broad terms, West Francia would go on to form France, while East Francia would become Germany. Now, obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. That is a gross oversimplification. But... The truth remains that Charlemagne and his conquests, the realm that he forged, they established foundational aspects of the geopolitical structure that we still have today in Europe. And additionally, as I said, Charlemagne's lifelong effort to spread Christianity throughout his realm entrenched it as the European religion. He didn't do this single-handedly, of course. There were lots of other people who, who made enormous contributions to the spread of Christianity throughout Europe and throughout the world. But the fact that Europe was, and broadly speaking still is, a Christian continent, this had a lot to do with the career of Charlemagne. And quite aside from all the conquest and conversion, Charlemagne's reforms in later life paved the way for standardized systems and processes throughout the entire European continent, legal systems, systems of ownership and trade, economic and monetary systems, the list goes on. Charlemagne didn't just shape Europe, he helped to create it. And even if you aren't going to credit him with something like being the first ever Holy Roman Emperor, you still cannot deny the massive influence this bloke had on the development of political religious, legal, military, and cultural affairs throughout Western Europe. Today, most of Europe is united under the European Union 
a broad multinational partnership that actually has a lot more in common with Charlemagne's empire than you might think at first blush. While the EU is obviously diplomatic in nature rather than military, um, today's Europe mirrors the Europe that Charlemagne helped to forge in quite a number of ways. A unified, closely aligned Europe, integrating diverse regions under one central authority, encouraging and enforcing economic cooperation, maintaining security and stability and, uh, well, not peace, really, because Charlemagne loved fighting far too much to be considered much of a pacifist. But all the same, Charlemagne's vision of uniting Europe politically, economically and culturally is still very much alive today in Europe's modern political institutions. Conceptually, at least, the EU is opt-in. They're not forcing you to join at sword point like Charlemagne might have. But all the same, just as the EU unites much of Europe today, so too did Charlemagne unite much of Europe 1,200 years ago. And in honour of Charlemagne, every year to this day, his home city of Aachen awards the Karlspreis der Stadt Aachen to the individual deemed to have best promoted the idea of European unity. Just not European unity at sword point, you would hope. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Charlemagne. And uh, I'd like to thank all the people who wrote in to suggest the topic. And I'd like to thank them as well for their patience. It did take me a long time to get around to this one. So I do hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned a thing or two. There were some fascinating aspects to this story that uh, that were new to me. So uh, I was I was very, very glad to get across it. And I hope you enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the episode uh, as much as I enjoyed writing it. Um, to close out not just this episode, but this year, uh, before we get to all the housekeeping stuff, I want to thank you very, very, very sincerely for being part of, uh, of, of Half Our History's journey throughout 2023. This is the final episode for the year coming out on New Year's Eve, and um, it, it closes out a year that has, without a doubt, been the best year for the podcast by quite a significant margin. More listeners than ever have started listening to half Ass History, and uh, it has spurred me on to pursue all sorts of new ideas and directions that the podcast can go into. Next week, we're starting our third weekly episode. Monuments will be kicking off. It'll be on your feed in, what, like five days? And on top of that, very much hoping to uh, to get a book in your hands. I don't know if it's going to happen this next year. Apparently, publishing a book is... A very long and arduous process as I'm as I'm learning, but I will do my best uh, to get it on bookshelves as, as soon as I can. And there are a number of other things as well that I'm hoping to be able to announce uh, in the coming 12 months that uh, will uh, will set the podcast off down all new and, and very exciting uh, paths. And I hope that you'll continue along these paths with me as you have throughout 2023. Whether you're a new listener who picked up the podcast for the first time in the last 12 months, one of the many, many thousands of new people who started listening to Half Ass History, thank you so very much. Welcome, by all means, welcome, and uh, and cheers for sticking around. And if you're one of the many thousands of people who continued to listen to the show into 2023 after listening to it for years and years and years, if you're part of the Half Ass History old guard, I can't thank you enough for still being here after all these years, still having this Tin Pot History podcast beamed into your ear holes week in and week out. 
This show would be nothing without its listeners, and I am so deeply, deeply appreciative of everyone who is not just listening to the show, but of course out there, telling their friends, telling their enemies, and telling people about whom they feel largely ambivalent. Uh, It is incredibly humbling to be a part of your weekly routine. Uh, As someone who listens to podcasts every week, I, I know how important podcasts are to people. I know how, you know, in many cases you set your watch to them. You have them as part of your weekly rituals and rhythms, and so... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so very thankful for the privilege of, of being part of yours. And uh, as I say, I'm hoping that uh, 2024 will be as good, if not better, than 2023. There is so much other stuff that I want to bring to listeners, and uh, I hope you'll stick around as, uh, as I continue to, uh, to explore all the different directions we can take this uh, increasingly less tin pot history podcast as, uh, as time passes. Um, I want to also um, give a very special thank you to all the patrons. Uh, I mentioned in the uh, in the intro that I do a little special patron-only intro to every episode. Uh, if you want to access all of these episodes, you can, of course, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory. Uh, have a bit of a chat before each episode begins, a bit of behind-the-curtain stuff there. And uh, in that, I, I, I thanked each and every one of them for being a spur to my flank, for, for being returning paying customers who choose to pay for a podcast that they could otherwise listen to for free. There's a very good chance that without the support of patrons, I would not have had the motivation to continue this podcast and uh, and have it reach the, the point that it has. And so I want to once again very sincerely thank all the people who are supporting me week in and week out on Patreon. Patreon. I would love it if uh, if you as a, as, as a regular listener would consider joining the Patreon. There's a, a range of benefits that I really do try to make worth uh, the money that you spend. It's not a whole lot of money. It's, you know, five bucks a month or something and you get access to all sorts of stuff. Um, not only the uncut episodes and the, and the little the little chats, but the the, the show notes, which are very very useful as uh, study guides if you're a, a history student. Um, and there's also merch and and all sorts of other stuff as well. So if you like the show and if it's something you want to see continue, Patreon.com/slash/halfhourshistory. But even if you're uh, you're not in a, su- a position to support the show at the moment, I, I'm deeply appreciative. And and as I say, I know it sounds like a very tired old cliche that gets wheeled out by content creators, but it is it is very sincerely deeply humbling to be part of your uh, your weekly rhythm and, and routine and uh, and so thank you that's all i can really say to you is just thank you thank you for listening thank you for telling people about the show and uh, and thank you for your your continued part in uh, in the story of, uh, of half house history anyway um i would like to wish you a a very safe and a healthy and a prosperous and a happy new year and I'm very much looking forward to your company as we get stuck into the, uh, the challenges and the opportunities and, of course, all of the silly nonsense that, uh, that 2024 will hopefully bring our way. Anyway, as, al- as always, of course, as ever, we are going to close out the show with a question posed on Reddit. Uh, this one comes to us from Redditor Terrapart, who asks, How exactly did Charlemagne make the professional transition from medieval emperor to 21st century radio host?